DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's programme, Eyes on the Skies, NATO stages practice manoeuvres in Germany and diplomacy in the Indo-Pacific. Fractured Factions, DW's political correspondent Thomas Sparrow on Germany's parliamentary infighting. I see these polls as a wake-up call for the coalition and the coalition really needs to uh, get its act together. They have to stop bickering and discussing on everything from migration to, uh, to energy issues. So these discussions do not benefit them at all. Sturgeon arrested. What does this mean for Scottish independence? And bye-bye Berlusconi. Italians look back at the end of an era. The largest air force manoeuvres in the history of the NATO alliance are underway in the skies above Germany. Meanwhile, NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg wants to ramp up the alliance's partnership in the Indo-Pacific region to counter China and Russia. But, as Terry Schultz reports, at least one European ally is not pleased with the plan. As NATO's biggest air exercise in history, Air Defender, sweeps through Allied skies, 25 countries are participating. Two of them are not NATO members. One is Sweden, not surprisingly, as it's awaiting acceptance into the organization. But the other stands out amongst the list that otherwise includes only the U.S. and European countries. No NATO partner is closer or more capable than uh, Japan. That's NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg visiting Tokyo in January. Ties between NATO and Japan have been rapidly deepening since Russia launched war on Ukraine. Standing next to Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, Stoltenberg noted the war has implications for Japan too. And that Tokyo recognized that by sanctioning Moscow and helping Kyiv with humanitarian assistance. If President Putin wins in Ukraine, this would send a message that authoritarian regimes can achieve their goals through brute force. This is dangerous. Beijing is watching closely and learning lessons that may influence its future decisions. What is happening in Europe today could happen in East Asia tomorrow. That last line is one Japanese officials also use regularly to explain to their own publics why the country, whose constitution binds it to pacifism, is taking any part in this conflict. But now there's a hitch in what would have been the next substantial step in the NATO-Japan relationship, the creation of a liaison office in Tokyo, NATO's first in Asia. It's been suggested as a coordination hub with not just Japan, but the other Indo-Pacific partners too, South Korea, Australia and New Zealand. The suggestion got blasted by Beijing, which is predictable, but also by another capital, Paris. French President Emmanuel Macron told a think tank conference that, quote, if we push NATO to enlarge the spectrum and the geography, we will make a big mistake. Patrick Cronin, who is the Asia-Pacific chair at the Hudson Institute think tank in Washington, calls Macron's response absurd and says it left the Japanese gobsmacked. The liaison office seems so simple. But I think it, it's also therefore easy to put down your foot if it's not that important. It's only a liaison office. And so uh, it's easier for Macron to object to something that isn't really so consequential. But he can sell it to the Chinese as, look what I'm doing. I'm standing up for Europe's independence from America and avoiding having Europe being pulled into the local affairs of Asia. 
Janne Leno is a foreign and security policy expert with the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung in Brussels. He spent many years in China and agrees with part of Cronin's assessment. But Leno has a suggestion he thinks may either diffuse some tensions with Beijing or at least deprive it of some points for criticism. If the argument is that we cannot open an office in Japan because we might anger China, which is a bit what Macron is pulling at the moment, at least officially, then, you know, why don't we just directly talk with China about this issue? Leno suggests asking Beijing if NATO could open a liaison office there. If the Chinese government rejected such an overture from NATO, he concludes, it would have to tone down its objections to other Indo-Pacific nations who do accept the offer of closer ties. Patrick Cronin thinks any invitation to China, as it stands now, is a step too far. Diplomacy is good. Open channels of communication, sure. But given the timing of this right now, I I certainly wouldn't do it when China's not even willing to talk to the United States directly on a military level. In any case, the leaders of Japan, South Korea, Australia and New Zealand have been invited for the second time to a NATO summit taking place next month in Vilnius. Terry Schultz, DW, at NATO headquarters in Brussels. Terry Schultz is active on both Mastodon and Twitter. Follow her for all the latest developments in Brussels and beyond. And talking of Brussels, towards the end of last week, the EU's interior ministers finally reached an agreement about the shape of future EU asylum policy. The proposed framework envisages that arrivals from countries deemed to be relatively safe, such as Morocco and Tunisia, will be sent straight to internment facilities for quick processing. Meanwhile, countries who don't take in their fair share of refugees will be made to provide financial assistance via a fund managed by the European Commission. DW's political correspondent, Thomas Sparrow, has been following the story with a particular eye to the domestic implications here in Germany. Thomas, whilst other EU interior ministers were returning from the negotiations in Luxembourg sounding a very triumphant note in many cases, Germany's interior minister, Nancy Faeser, sounded almost defensive. She pointed out, for example, that there had been no better deal on the table. Can you explain to me what's been going on? Essentially, it has to do with the fact that Germany is led by a three-party coalition and that three-party coalition has very different interests if you look at the specific parties. You have the Social Democrats leading uh, the government. You have the Greens and the Liberals as well, part of this three-way coalition. It's, by the way, the first time that Germany is led at a federal level by three parties. And you've seen these three parties bicker and discuss about several issues since they actually came to power, but in particular also in recent weeks. And one of the issues where they have been discussing a lot, where they do not necessarily see eye to eye, is the issue of migration. It is very, very evident that these three parties really had trouble trying to make sure that this EU-wide migration deal actually uh, was accepted at a local level here in Germany, because you have parties that see the migration issue from a completely different perspective. In particular, if you look, for example, at the at the Greens, there are already internal discussions within the party between those who believe that that deal should not have been approved from a German perspective, that it goes against the values that the Greens have followed for the last few years, for the last few decades, whereas others within the party say that basically ruling means being pragmatic, And that being pragmatic means that you have to be able to come to agreements 
at a national level, but also at an EU-wide level. So all in all, it really shows once again that Germany's three-way coalition is a very, very difficult group, a very difficult coalition altogether because they look at issues from very different perspectives. Yeah, I mean, interesting that you picked out the Green Party uh, there, Thomas, because this is a discussion that we have had before in a different context because the Green Party now in power uh, is finding that it is often having to take decisions that really go directly against the core values of its base. So we had energy policy, for example. Is the party in crisis, do you think? Is it that serious? And if so, what could that mean for the governing coalition? Well, again, it goes to the fact that in most German parties, but in the Green Party as well, you have a division between those who believe that the party needs to be able to compromise, that the party needs to be able to be pragmatic, that it's good to be in power. Uh, On the other hand, those who are actually against the idea of making those kinds of compromises that go against values that they have defended for a long uh, time. What is important here, if you look at it from a broader perspective, is that this bickering between the three coalition parties uh, that are leading Germany is not benefiting them in the polls at all. In fact, the party that is actually benefiting the most of all this bickering and all these discussions is actually the far-right alternative for Germany, or AFD. They have reached record levels of approval. And if you look at the people who vote for the AFD or who would vote for the AFD, they're doing so not necessarily because they believe in what the AFD is promising, but because they are very disappointed with some of the other political parties in Germany. So I see these polls as a wake-up call for the coalition, and the coalition really needs to uh, get its act together. They have to stop bickering and discussing on everything from migration to, uh, to energy issues. So these discussions do not benefit them at all. Now, it's not just the coalition parties that are struggling in the polls. If Germany were to vote tomorrow, the left-wing party, Die Linke, might not even make it into Parliament. Now, the Linke has been uh, racked by infighting, particularly over its controversial star, Zara Wagenknecht. And this week, Die Linke finally moved to disassociate itself from her. Are we looking at the formation of another splinter party here, Thomas? And if so, what are the implications for the German political landscape? So the left party is actually the smallest party in the German opposition. So they currently poll at around 4 to 5%. There is a 5% threshold here in Germany. So basically, this means that they are really having difficulties when it comes to, to the polls. If there were elections, as you mentioned, it would be unclear whether the left party would actually get into the German parliament, and that has to do to a large extent with all this infighting, and in particular with the uh, very controversial person of Zara Wagenknecht. Zara Wagenknecht is an icon of the of the left party, but she has distanced herself in the last few months from the party, warning, for example, that she would consider building her own party, something that is not that easy. And if Zara Wagenknecht does leave Die Linke and several other MPs follow suit, then the left party could actually lose its status as a fraction in the German parliament. And this has all sorts of implications when it comes to the money that the party receives at the time the party has to give speeches and so on. So it is a very, very difficult decision that the leadership actually uh, carried out when they said that they were demanding Sarah Wagner to give up a seat in, in parliament. But it essentially means that Wagner and the left party are going in very different 
direction. So the left party, for example, had supported uh, sanctions against the Russian economy. Wagenknecht rejected that. The left party uh, rejected the war uh, that Russia is carrying out in uh, Ukraine. Wagenknecht, on the other hand, spoke of a of an economic war against Russia. And those are just two examples of where the party and Wagenknecht do not see eye to eye. So it's a risk for Wagenknecht, but it's also a risk for the left party. And that's something that the current leaders of the left party will have to consider very carefully because they do risk losing their status as a fraction in the German parliament. Thomas Sparrow, thanks so much for joining me. Always great to have your analysis on the show. Always a pleasure. Thomas Sparrow there talking to us from home because he is nursing a broken ankle. That is not, however, going to prevent him from attending DW's Global Media Forum next week. And I know that because I have already bagged myself a coffee break with him. Now, there's been heated debate here in Bonn this week as the UN's 2023 climate conference draws to a close. The conference represents the last major round of talks before COP28, which will be held in Dubai in December. Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg addressed the delegates on Wednesday and her verdict on the speed of action was damning. The political will is nowhere to be seen. And the truth now is that these processes are failing. They are failing us here in this room. They are failing our children. They are failing all of humanity and the future generations to come. But most importantly, they are failing the people bearing the brunt of this crisis today and have been for the last decades. Thunberg's frustration was shared by Kenyan activist Eric Nyonga, who drew particular attention to frustrations surrounding the choice of the United Arab Emirates, a major oil-producing nation, as host. And I think history records will show that in 2023, for COP28, metaphorically speaking, we let a mosquito lead the fight against malaria. It's a stab in the back for communities who are bearing the brunt of the climate crisis, but also the future generations who will be affected adversely by the climate crisis. For more in-depth reporting on the Bonn Climate Conference and the road to COP28, check out DW's environment pages and, of course, the Living Planet podcast. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Nicola Sturgeon was Scotland's longest-serving First Minister, providing a sense of competence and calm, whilst across the border in England, Prime Minister after Prime Minister bit the political dust. Now, Scotland's former leader has been arrested and released without charge as part of an investigation into her party's finances. Sturgeon has said she is innocent beyond doubt, but her arrest and the police inquiry may have profound implications for the Scottish independence movement of which she was such a key linchpin. Dan Ashby has more. The First Minister of Scotland is in my admittedly biased opinion, the very best job in the world. It is a privilege 
Nicola Sturgeon called it the best job in the world, leading the nation of Scotland within the UK for nearly a decade. But it was this moment in March this year that shocked the country. Her sudden resignation from the top echelons of power to spend more time with her family. I am proud to stand here as the first female and longest serving incumbent of this office. And I'm very proud of what has been achieved in the years I've been in Butte House. Last week, though, the headlines dramatically changed. Uh, a huge breaking news uh, development in the last few seconds. Uh, the former First Minister of Scotland, the woman who was at the very heart of Scotland's government for more than 3,000 days, is now a police suspect, is now... Sturgeon went from podium to police interrogation after she was arrested for seven hours as part of an inquiry into her party's finances. The Scottish police are investigating claims that the Scottish National Party misspent more than £600,000 that was donated to the party to help the independence movement. Sturgeon is the third person to be arrested, along with her husband and the party's treasurer. None of them were charged. Since the arrest, Sturgeon released a statement saying, I do wish to say this and to do so in the strongest possible terms. Innocence is not just a presumption I am entitled to in law. I know beyond doubt that I am in fact innocent of any wrongdoing. Even before the arrest, Sturgeon's resignation was a blow to the independence movement. Her successors only command a fraction of her fame and authority. But now the police investigation looks likely to hit her party's popularity even more and may, in the short term, spell an opportunity for the Unionist Labour Party. One of Scotland's leading academics, Professor Michael Keating from the University of Aberdeen, cautions that demographics suggest that in the long term, independent sentiment is here to stay. It's, it's a long-term demographic thing. We also know that... He told me, it's a long-term demographic thing. We also know support for the SNP has been falling in recent weeks, but support for independence has not. It's really quite stable. It's fluctuating around the upper 40s, 50% or something like that. So that suggests the issue has not gone away. The issue has not gone away. But for Nicola Sturgeon and her party, the SNP, the fight is now on. Could the nationalist movement move away from them? And is her legacy at risk of being overshadowed by a police investigation? And the nature and form of modern political discourse means that there is a much greater intensity. Dare I say it, brutality to life as a politician. She said the job of leading the country was brutal. But the coming years look just as tough. Dan Ashby, DW, in the UK. To another political figure casting a long shadow over their native country now, Silvio Berlusconi, who has died at the age of 86. It is the end of an era in Italy where the billionaire developer, football club owner, media impresario and four times prime minister was a mainstay of the country's politics for some three decades. From Milan, Megan Williams reports on the legacy of a man as famed for his sex scandals and legal troubles as he was for his competitive political style and personal charisma. A final farewell to Italy's flamboyant and controversial former leader Silvio Berlusconi. 
with cheers from the crowd of 5,000 or so who stood in the hot sun outside Milan's Duomo Cathedral to bid a deal. I'm here to say goodbye to the man who was with us for a lifetime, not the politician, says this woman. Berlusconi represents the best realization of the Italian dream, says this man. For a whole generation of Italians, it will be hard to imagine the country without Silvio Berlusconi. The larger-than-life politician rose to power in the mid-90s after busting through Italy's state TV monopoly and seizing control of much of the media, rolling out soap operas and variety shows, some that could be mistaken for soft porn, and transforming Italian culture. It was not Berlusconi himself. Berlusconi was the best interpreter, I think, to understand what Italians were longing for says cultural critic Lorella Zanardo. Supporters say he blew a can-do capitalist breath of fresh air into a country stagnating in post-war socialist constraints. Opponents saw him as all the worst stereotypes of Italian men, a crooked charmer who gleefully cavorted with the world's most ruthless leaders, Russia's Vladimir Putin, a favorite. A consummate showman, he appeared on the channels he owned, referring to himself, as he often did, in third person. Silvio Berlusconi si impegna. Pulling political stunts, like signing a contract with Italians, where he'd keep his tax-slashing promises. And airing cheesy commercials, with a chorus of adoring women singing, Thank goodness for Silvio. regularly sparred with left-wing opponents on TV, once with disparaging flourish, wiping the seat clean after a journalist he accused of conducting a witch hunt against him stood up. The billionaire leader faced multiple accusations, including corruption, tax fraud, and paying for sex with an underage girl in one of his infamous Bunga Bunga sex parties. Most of the cases went nowhere in Italy's grindingly slow court system. What put an end to his leadership was economics. In 2011, Italy, led by Berlusconi, risked bringing down the whole Eurozone in the financial crisis, and Berlusconi was kicked out of office. Bye-bye, Silvio. Bye-bye. Current Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni, along with politicians of all stripes, attended his funeral. And along with his state funeral, she also called for a national day of mourning, a decision that rankled many. Angry, a leader convicted of tax fraud, received such an honor. Meloni, leader of the right-wing coalition that includes Berlusconi's Forza Italia party, called him a man who never feared fighting for his beliefs. Meloni is now faced with political uncertainty in her coalition, with Forza Italia now without a leader. Some observers say his eldest daughter, Marina, who has stayed out of politics, may step in. Others think Meloni will try to absorb the 8% who voted for Berlusconi into her far-right Brothers of Italy party. But Silvio Berlusconi's biggest legacy isn't politics. It's the deep and unmistakable imprint on this country's culture his embodiment for many of the Italian dream, but for many others, the very worst qualities of Italy. Megan Williams, DW, Milan. Just time for a quick reminder of our feedback address. 
Inside Europe at DW.com. And also that you can subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. I said, name your number. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up in the next half hour. So we vote on the Commission proposal by roll call. The vote is open. Vote is closed. And it is adopted. Congratulations. Negotiations on the EU's long-awaited AI Act entered their final stage on Wednesday after the EU Parliament in Strasbourg voted to adopt a key text which will form the basis of the much-needed law. A perfect moment, we thought, to release part two of our Digital Futures special. Featuring deep fakes and democracy, racist algorithms and false accusations, Russian tech workers in exile, and the places where our digital and carbon footprints meet. Plus, of course, the welcome return of tech editor Luca Bertuzzi to help us make sense of it all. So do stay tuned and stay logged on, because that is all still to come. Wednesday's AI Act vote is a major milestone on the way to equipping the EU to deal with the challenges posed by artificial intelligence. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of what happened in Strasbourg, however, we wanted to take a look at some of the issues that are at stake. We've already seen how social media has weakened Europe's democracies, with platforms being banned for sowing political divisions by spreading extremism and fake news. Now, though, the advent of advanced AI is threatening to wreak even more havoc, as computers can now produce videos and images that mimic real politicians, newsreaders and disasters. AI also allows our data and even communications to be more easily scanned, meaning that our right to privacy could go out of the window. As the EU's AI Act passes a key hurdle in the European Parliament, policymakers are struggling to balance the need for innovation with protecting the public. Inside Europe producer Nick Martin reports. For example, this image of Pope Francis. Is he really wearing a designer jacket? The Pope in a puffer jacket. Putin turns to Buddhism. And Donald Trump being arrested. Images that seem so real, uh, even though we know they're fake because well, Donald Trump. That one was could not have been real. Deep fakes are becoming so realistic, it's scary. Even before the arrival of advanced AI, people were already struggling to tell fact from fiction on social media. 
Physicist and AI researcher Max Tegmark is so concerned about the threat to democracy and humanity itself, he was one of a thousand academics and executives to sign a letter earlier this year calling for a pause in the rollout of AI. For those who say it's not dangerous yet, well, what about uh, all the crazy things that have happened to our democracy where even much more low-tech AI with its recommender algorithms, you know, created these horrible filter bubbles and the polarization that we're seeing that's really fragmenting our society with more hate than understanding. That's just a little warning shot, really, of how we stand to lose control more and more of our society as these systems get more powerful, unless we set in place good safety measures. Along with the EU's Digital Services Act, which will regulate the largest social media platforms from August, the European AI Act seeks to categorise AI applications according to their risk. But as it's not expected to come into force until 2025, a year after the next European parliamentary elections, Brussels is trying to get companies to sign up to a voluntary code of conduct to help reduce the spread of misinformation. And there's going to be a whole lot of changes that are coming, particularly around how governments think about data. Keegan McBride, a lecturer in AI, government and politics at Oxford University's Internet Institute, warns that advanced AI models allow fake news to spread much more easily. When we're talking about, let's say, the upcoming European elections, there's going to be mis- and disinformation campaigns. Usually these are going to sort of originate from nation-state actors, but they've been doing this for a long time. With AI, the difference is you can do it cheaper, much more efficiently and effectively, and it doesn't necessarily need to be a nation-state actor anymore, let's say. There's nothing that's stopping any person who has a little bit of technical capacity from spinning up their own bot farm and using AI to create the avatars, to create the content and spread it out to the world. I did not steal these bikes, and these police officers racially profiled me. As if trust in our democratic institutions wasn't low enough, AI is allowing governments to snoop on their citizens like never before. Dutch and German police have been criticised for using AI to scan social media to create profiles of suspected criminals before any crimes have been committed. Predictive policing, as it's known, has been found to exacerbate racial bias. France, meanwhile, is planning to use AI facial recognition software during the 2024 Olympics. Pirate Party European lawmaker Patrick Breyer thinks it could be a pretext for more generalised surveillance of public spaces across Europe. The EU likes to present itself as a shining example of liberty and fundamental rights, but Technology nowadays has the potential to create a high-tech surveillance state as envisioned by China, for instance. If you use technology for maximum surveillance and control, governments will know everything about us. So this is really a risk to democracy and the openness of EU governments to this kind of technology is really scary. As European lawmakers try to push through amendments that restrict the use of biometric surveillance, other privacy threats have emerged. Hey Nick, just to let you know, I'm taking my lunch break now for an hour uh, because I've got a thing with the kids that I need to sort. Um, The European Commission is now considering allowing law enforcement agencies to scan private audio messages. While the initial aim is laudable, to root out child sexual exploitation, the technology could lead to false allegations. 
In Ireland, police retrieved innocuous photos of children playing on a beach and despite clearing their parents of anything illegal, kept the images on file. Briar, a self-proclaimed digital freedom fighter, is concerned about so-called mission creep, where more and more uses are found for these services. These technologies have never been used on audio, and when it comes to text communications, they are totally unreliable and would implicate many innocent conversations that you may have on, on dating platforms or even with your partner. Rolling out this technology would effectively be the end of the digital privacy of correspondence because you could no longer rely that your personal correspondence will still be private. Many AI experts believe the technology can offer important checks and balances for the public, ensuring transparency about what data is accessed and by whom. Keegan McBride from Oxford University again. Well, I've been in Estonia the past basically eight years, and there we have a completely digital government. My data is stored on government systems, but anytime somebody looks at my data, I'm able to see which agency looked at it, what time, what day, and if I don't know why, I can send them requests and ask them for it. So there are some things that you can do. We can build systems to give more control over personal data. We can build new systems to, let's say, ensure auditability. All of this stuff is possible, but the problem is, is most governments don't have this at the moment. And so they're skipping a few steps, jumping straight to AI without having the sort of foundations in place. Many tech and privacy experts question whether Brussels can keep up with the rapid pace of change. The most popular AI chatbots are constantly advancing their skills. And those that seek to influence or disrupt elections are likely working on how to best utilise those tools. Nick Martin, DW. Lots to think about there, and I'll be finding out to what extent the EU's AI Act is equipped to tackle the problems Nick identified in his report when I speak to your active tech editor, Luca Bertuzzi, in a few minutes. First, though, there was another digital futures issue that we wanted to flag up, racial bias in algorithms. The example that immediately sprang to our minds here was the Netherlands, a country where not so long ago, outrage over algorithmic bias brought down a government. Here's Stefan Boss with the first of two warnings from Amsterdam. If you're looking for a salutary warning about the dangers of unregulated algorithms in the public sector, then look no further than the Netherlands. In 2021, Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte was forced to dissolve his own government after tens of thousands of families were falsely accused of benefits fraud, a scandal which had a racist algorithm at its heart. What happened was this. For years, the Dutch tax authorities were using an automated system to flag up potential cases of child benefit fraud. Racial and class-based discrimination were baked in from the start, with the algorithm programmed to identify parents from ethnic minorities or living on low incomes as presenting a higher fraud risk. Because the algorithm was self-learning, these biases then became amplified, with no meaningful human oversight. The results were devastating. Tens of thousands of families were falsely accused of cheating the system and pushed into poverty due to exorbitant debts to the tax agency. Some victims committed suicide. Over a thousand children 
were forcibly taken into foster care, traumatizing many youngsters. Many families still suffer under tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of euros in debt, with at least 26,000 parents and 70,000 children impacted, the Toeslagenaffaire, as it is known in Dutch, represented the worst misuse of power in the Netherlands since the Second World War. In 2021, an investigation by a few journalists and legislators eventually led to the brief downfall of Mark Rutte's cabinet. But the self-declared liberal Rutte, one of Europe's longest-serving government leaders, smiled his way out of the crisis and was even re-elected. Hearings into the affair are still ongoing, anxiously watched over by emotional parents sitting on the parliament's balcony. At a recent session, Rutte was asked to reflect on the scandal, to which he replied that a solution would be found quickly and that the government had a debt of honor to deliver change. Empty words, say survivors. For many parents, the misery is far from over. Stefan Bos, DW, The Netherlands. Keep an ear out for Stefan Boss's second warning from Amsterdam postcard coming up later in the show. Now, though, it's high time that we checked in with Luca Bertuzzi, Euractiv's digital tech editor and, for the purposes of our Digital Futures special, Inside Europe's guest expert. Luca is fresh back from Strasbourg, where he was in Parliament to witness the plenary vote on the EU's much-anticipated AI Act. Luca, welcome back to the show. Tell me, was there high drama in the end, or did everything go smoothly to plan? Actually, it was a lot of noise for nothing, I would say. Last week, we reported how there was tension between the European People's Party from the centre-right and the other four main political groups in the European Parliament, Renew, the Liberals, the Social Democrats from the centre-left and the Greens. Basically, the EPP was accused of having broken the deal not to table amendments, whereas the conservative lawmakers thought they had negotiated enough flexibility to try to table an amendment on a very sensitive topic, remote biometric identification, also known as fascia recognition. But eventually all the amendments that were not part of the deal uh, didn't make it through. So the text was adopted as it was adopted in the committee and at the end of the day there were no surprises. So what happens now? Can you take me through the remaining stages that this bill needs to pass through before it actually becomes law? Of course. So the AI Act follows the ordinary legislative process at the EU level, which means that after the European Parliament and the EU Council of Ministers reached their positions, and the Parliament just did, the Council did so back in December, now they can negotiate in what we call the trilogues, which are informal negotiations. They are not part of any treaty. They have become a costume, let's say, in in EU policy making. And basically, you have the two co-legislators and the European Commission sitting at the same table and try to nail down an agreement. The first political trilogue was held yesterday. This was just a kickoff meeting and a few photos being taken, but the real work now will take place at the 
technical level. And we know that the Spanish presidency, as soon as they take over the negotiations in July, they want to really push this through and nail an agreement by December or even November if they manage. Right. Okay. But I mean, do we have time to wait? I mean, with ChatGTP and other generative language model AIs just changing the world as we know it at such a rapid pace, can we sort of afford to be totally protected until then? Are we totally unprotected until then? Or are there sort of other things that come into force? Well, you know, this is uh, interesting what you just said, because two years ago, when the AI Act was first presented, people were saying, what are you doing? AI is not there yet. Uh, Why are you regulating something that doesn't exist? And here we are now saying that, you know, the EU is coming too late. I think, you know, that the EU legislative process can seem somewhat inefficient. It actually works quite well if you consider all the different interests you have to put together from 27 member states. I think we will have an agreement and the legislation uh, will enter into force within two years' times. There are discussions now on the table to anticipate part of the rules for generative AI and other powerful uh, large language models. So it might be the case that we have these rules in place for this uh, chat GPT and the likes earlier on. What is also important to say is that there are initiatives at the EU level to address the current concerns on generative AI. So we have seen... Commissioner Breton launching the AI Pact, which is basically a dialogue with the industry. It was started with Google, but we can expect other companies to sign up to see whether they will implement some of these obligations ahead of time to help them comply with the new with the new legislation. We also have seen an initiative from Commissioner Vestager at the international level. This is more at the, the part of the G7. What is called the Hiroshima process because there was a G7 of digital ministers uh, in Hiroshima uh, back in April where they agreed to uh, tackle the challenges of generative AI and basically there is a discussion ongoing to develop voluntary code of conduct among the, the G7 countries but also to include probably the likes of India and Brazil that are uh, key digital partners for the EU. But basically, it sounds as though you think the EU's got us covered. Well, look, uh, I, I, I don't have the crystal ball, right? I think it has, uh, policymakers are doing with the information they have today. Uh, when the AI Act was first written by the European Commission, ChatGPT didn't exist yet. And so now we are seeing a new generation of language models every six months. This is a fast-paced technology and we should expect that, you know, it, it evolves more rapidly than policymakers can keep up. Uh, but I think for for now, there is, a, there is a good understanding of what the risks are and how they can be mitigated. Fantastic. Listen, Luca, Luca Bertuzzi, your active digital tech editor, thank you so much for joining us again and being our resident tech expert, really, for this Digital Futures special. Thank you. My pleasure. As I've mentioned before, Luca's byline at Euractive was my number one go-to resource when trying to understand this topic, so do check it out.
We've got Russian tech workers in exile coming up next. For now, though, I'm Kate Laycock in Germany, and you're listening to Inside Europe. One country's loss is another country's gain. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, it's estimated that at least 100,000 tech workers have left Russia and moved abroad to neighbouring countries like Georgia and Armenia. They fled because they opposed the war or feared getting drafted to fight in Ukraine. The exodus of so many tech workers is a blow to Russia's economy – but it's helping to start an economic boom in some of the European countries that received them. From Yerevan, Armenia, Levi Bridges reports. At a new resource centre for Russian migrants in Yerevan, young anti-war Russians are rehearsing a play. The centre helps Russians adapt to life abroad, and it holds events like this one to give recent arrivals a chance to have some fun. Here I meet a young tech worker from the Russian city Yekaterinburg named Andrei. He didn't want to give his last name because he worries the Russian government might retaliate against his family because he doesn't support the war. Andrei didn't want to leave home, but after the Russian government started forcing men to serve in Ukraine last fall, he worried they might close the borders entirely. It felt like anything was possible. And it seems quite logical that government could close the borders of the country. So you were afraid that you would be trapped there? Yeah, so I decided that it's uh, better to leave because I could be trapped inside the country that uh, going com completely mad. It's kind of will be feeling like a wasting of my life. Like a lot of anti-war Russians, Andrei works remotely as a web developer for a Swedish firm. I told Andre that it seemed to me like starting over abroad must be easy for tech workers. Their lives continue, they have the same jobs, they're just no longer in Russia. Uh, no, actually it's not so easy because, uh, first of all, it's a huge disappointment when your country is going crazy and start to killing people around it. So nobody likes to think that their country are evil and that is what we faced. Some tech workers left Russia because their political views put them at risk. In Russia, you can be sent to jail just for opposing the war. At a cafe in Yerevan, I meet a data analyst from Moscow named Alexei Rostotsky. He went to an anti-war protest in Moscow. And after he got there, police officers told him to move on and pushed him around a little. But Rostotsky told them he hadn't done anything wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and then they just said, like, uh, OK, arrest him. And they arrested me. They kept Rostotsky at a police station for the night and charged him with participating in an unlawful protest. Before all this, he wanted to stay in Russia to make his country a better place. And uh, I didn't have, like, an opportunity to do this uh, in Russia. Like, none. I could, I could not do anything. Me, myself. So he moved to Armenia. For tech workers here, it's disappointing watching what's happening in Russia. 
For years, Russia gained prominence as an emerging tech sector, but sanctions made it difficult for many tech companies to operate in Russia. So after the war in Ukraine started, they moved to countries like Armenia, which makes Russia's economy more isolated. So I do think that it's bad for Russia to become uh, like North Korea. But Armenians who work in the local tech industry here say the war in Ukraine is causing a tech boom in Armenia. Inside the Armenian Coding Academy in downtown Yerevan, office workers busily type on keyboards. Narek Aslikyan, the school's CEO, says the number of tech workers in Armenia more than doubled in just the last year. And that's strengthening Armenia's tech scene. We have enough lawyers, economists, accountants, and so on. But uh, we never had enough engineers in Armenia. The rising number of tech engineers and programmers has made Armenia far more attractive for tech companies seeking to open up offices abroad. Russians have registered thousands of businesses here in the last year, and Armenia's economy has been growing rapidly. Vahan Karapyan, Armenia's minister of economy, says Russians are having a positive impact. These people are uh, talented people. They also contribute to economy. And uh, their living in Armenia and working from Armenia has uh, boosted our growth. But not everyone is convinced the picture is so rosy. Andrei, the Russian web developer I met, worries the Russian tech scene in Armenia could be in for a bumpy ride ahead. It's very possible that the Russian government will push the IT company to stop working remotely or make a big taxes to make it more difficult. Some Russian lawmakers have proposed harsh measures like seizing property from tech workers who left Russia to coerce them to return home and stop the brain drain. But those threats aren't diminishing the optimism in Armenia's tech community. I visit an Armenian tech company in Yerevan called Pixart that produces photo editing software. In the cafeteria, Russian and Armenian workers are mingling over coffee and snacks. A couple workers are playing ping pong. Madeleine Minyasin, an Armenian-American who works in employee development here, says having so many new Russian co-workers is a positive development. The value that our new Russian colleagues that they are bringing is wonderful in that they're coming from different experiences, different organizations, and the diversity of that really does impact the idea generation. It's a difficult situation, and this is the bright side of it, is this diverse collaboration. For years, Armenian migrants have gone to Russia to work low-wage jobs. But now, Russians are migrating to Armenia and helping to improve the economy. If the trend continues, more Armenians will likely be able to stay and work at home, alongside their new Russian neighbors. Levi Bridges, DW, Yerevan, Armenia. We're nearing the end of the programme, but before we go, we thought we'd leave you with a little reminder that, as hipster t-shirts like to point out, there's no such thing as the cloud, it's just somebody else's computer. Those computers are, of course, all too real and all too solid, and an awful lot of them are housed in the Netherlands. Here's Stefan Boss with his final warning from Amsterdam. Amsterdam isn't just the capital of the Netherlands, it's Europe's unofficial data centre capital too. Data centers, by the way, aren't the glamorous glass-fronted office spaces of tech giants like Google and Meta. 
They're the big ugly metal warehouse spaces in which the actual physical servers powering the digital world are housed. Tax incentives and the nation's strategic location with one of the world's best digital infrastructures may explain the influx of these mega spaces. Necessary internet sea cables arrive here and builders of data centers believe there's a low risk of natural disasters. But with some 200 megahubs and one of the world's fastest supercomputers already in Sintu, many Dutch voters had enough. Data centers are ugly and energy guzzling. They use large amounts of water to keep their surface cool, and the chemicals used to treat the water then get put back into the soil. To make matters worse, all of this is happening at a time when many Dutch farmers are facing bankruptcy due to the Netherlands' ambitious nitrogen targets. Put simply, it doesn't seem fair. Last year, the public outcry led the Dutch government to impose a nine-month moratorium on data center construction and prompted Facebook owner Meta to abandon a plan to build a 1.38 gigawatt-hour megacenter in Seewolde, 50 kilometers east of Amsterdam. Of course, there can be no digitalization without data centers, and they have to go somewhere. The Seewolde Meta project was due to run on green energy and was expected to create 400 permanent jobs. But critics say, in the places where our digital and carbon footprints meet, questions should be asked about just how much data we actually need to keep. So maybe think of the residents of Amsterdam next time you upload your latest cute cat picture to the cloud. Stefan Bos. DW, the Netherlands. Stefan Boss there. Now, subscribing to or rating our podcast is one digital activity that is, I think, unlikely to increase your digital footprint very much, but it will help us to reach more people with our journalism. So please do help us out if you've not done so already. Similarly, we do enjoy getting your mail via the inside Europe at dw.com address and are always grateful for feedback and show ideas. So do drop us a line. That's it for today. This programme was produced by Helen Sini, with help from me, Kate Laycock, and sound engineer Thomas Schmidt. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn, Germany. <laughs>